I do think that there is this thing where Solana can't be ignored, right? You can disagree with it, you can criticize it, but you can't ignore it. And, you know, it is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. Like, that is 80 to 90% of the brain trust at this point of what's going on in the crypto space. Hello and welcome to DeFire, the crypto storytelling podcast that was right here with you throughout the bear market. Today on the show, I get to talk to Austin Federa, the head of strategy of Solana. It's important to note that this episode was recorded a couple of weeks back when Solana was still sitting at around $20 and the sentiment was still a bit bleak. So when Austin asked me what I wanted to achieve with this episode, this is what I told him. What do you find most of your listeners are kind of interested in? Um, You know, it's a black box. I don't really know what they want, but I know what I want and I want to be entertained. I like to be unapologetically bullish today. Cool. Um, I like to do things a little bit different than maybe other hosts. So, yeah, I just want to have like a holistic view of Solana and also hear some anecdotes, some stories from you, some insights, some alpha, whatever. Yeah. Sounds good. Let's do it. So as you heard, the premise of this episode was to inject some much-needed bullish energy into the Solana community. And Austin certainly didn't disappoint on that front. However, I didn't just throw softballs at Austin. I asked him to address some of the most persistent thought surrounding Solana, including its ties to FTX and SPF, among other topics. Our discussion also delves into the fundamental differences between Ethereum and Solana. We touch on intriguing topics like the Solana phone, the token economics of Sol, and much more. Of course, I couldn't resist the temptation to ask Austin for some price predictions. So stay tuned and see whether I was able to get him to answer this question or not. But now, without further ado, let's start the show. All right. Doing research for this podcast, I found your Instagram feed and I went looking for clues, you know, like I I crawled all the way down. I liked your very first picture of a a wood pile. (laughs) Did the the cringy thing what a a stalker would do, but uh, I I just did this for fun. But, you know, like going through through your Instagram, um, you see a lot of cats, you see books, you see hikes, stuff in the nature, like nothing would indicate that you end up as a crypto bro. Tell, tell us a little bit, uh, you know, like going back to the roots, what were your interests? How did you end up from uh, being kind of this yeah. nature kid to going to Solana? I, I mean, that stuff is all still me, I would say. So uh, in college, I was doing environmental studies and political science. And a lot of that work was focused on uh, like transboundary water management treaties in like conflict zones. And I really thought about going and doing a PhD. But Um, I honestly, uh, there's this really depressing moment where I was looking at, this is like pretty nerdy, but there's NBER, which is the National Bureau of Economic Relations. They have this great database where they publish all their economic white papers. And the average number of downloads on an article was, I think, seven. Hmm. And the average number of authors on a paper was six. Okay. (laughs) So everyone got got their copy, basically. (laughs) Everyone downloaded their copy and And you're you're just like, oh, man, like, is this really what I want to do with my life? Mm -hmm. Do I want to spend it, like, doing writing papers and doing work that, like, statistically no one is reading? Mm -hmm. 
And so um, I actually went into journalism. I ran social media and digital content for the Boston Globe. I worked for Public Radio International on the show The World, um, which was all incredibly fun and exciting. Um, and then slowly kind of started getting the bug to work for startups um, because I like that fast-paced nature of it. Honestly, I did not like working for most of the startups that I, I worked for. I thought they were too... <sighs> the consumer startup world is very rough, and it's just a lot of marketing and sort of fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you never make it. Maybe you just end up continuing to fake it. Yeah. And um, I was working for a fintech company that was sort of in the process of failing, and they were like, why don't we sort of borrow Lend token on Ethereum? I was not a huge crypto fan at the time, but I started learning about smart contracts, and I was like, oh, this stuff actually is really powerful and possible to change the world with. And so I kind of got into crypto accidentally, right? Like, the point of crypto for me has always been about the world that it can create, which is not the sort of, like, libertarian, my Bitcoin and my bunker dream. It's the fact that, like, I think we can build much more fair economic systems when everyone involved is a participant, the bargain that Uber and DoorDash and Lyft and, you know, pick your company that sort of runs on gig economy workers is the value accrues to a very small group of people. Um, But like if Uber had been owned by the people who were driving for it, even if like drivers had just gotten $2,000 of stock a year, right? By the time that company went public, that would have been enough for a house or a down payment. And so I think there's better ways to use technologies like blockchain to actually build fairer economic systems that are better for all participants. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I ended up here. And how does Solana fit in this picture? Um, Because I I started in crypto roughly around the same time, 2016, and then 2017 was this crazy bull run and the ICO craze. And L1 started to spring up left and right you know, the, the Ethereum yeah. killers. And I think at that time on my radar, not that I like them, but I've seen, you know, like EOS had a big mind share. Um, sure. Uh, stuff like Tezos, Cardano, you know, all those which are still around. Ripple, I mean, was there before actually. Um, but Solana mm-hmm. was kind of like not so present. How did you find your way into uh, Solana? Yeah, it's a good question because it was not an obvious choice at the time at all. Before uh, my work at Solana Labs and Solana Foundation, I was at uh, Bison Trails, which was the blockchain infrastructure company that Coinbase ended up acquiring that became Coinbase Cloud. Mm-hmm. Coinbase was not the right place for me. And so, you know, there, there's a parting of ways there at the acquisition that was just like, I, I don't think I would have thrived in a massive, highly regulated company like Coinbase is. And, no, you know, nothing against Coinbase. There's amazing people there, but like, it just wasn't the place for me. And, you know, I was interviewing with a bunch of L2s and I was interviewing with a number of L1s. And uh, a guy I had hired a few years ago at Republic named Ben Sparango, um, you know, saw that I was on the market. He's like, hey, you should come talk to Raj and Tolly. I just joined this team, you know, a few months ago and it's great. And I was like, I don't know, man, like I I talked to 20 or 30 different protocols when I was at Bison Trails. I never talked to anyone from Solana, like the network kind of just launched, like what's going Mm -hmm. on there? And he's like, no, no, trust me, like you got to go, you got to go talk to these guys. So I get on the call uh, and then I get on another call and another call and, you know, 30 hours later I had the offer letter signed. And so it was a very fast process where I was just like instantly like, oh, these guys... 
let me back up a second. So I've been working on a bunch of ETH2 staking infrastructure at Bison Trails. And the thing that kept bugging me was sharding. And I, you know, and it was like, I just, I, I thought I was missing something. I thought it was like, I can't wrap my head around how this thing's going to actually scale Ethereum. And I got on a call with Tolly, and he's like, oh, no, no, like, you're totally right. Like, fracturing the state is not a good solution. It creates all these problems. Like, DeFi is not going to work in a sharded environment. DeFi is not going to work on layer twos and threes and fours. And, you know, bridges are a real source of hacks and a real source of problems. So what you really should do is have as few layers as possible. And that's Solana's thesis. We want it to be the best execution environment to have tons of transactions available for whatever people want to build. And for me, I was like, oh, this is like, this is a very different bet than everyone else is making. Everyone else at the time, you know, Polkadot was like parachains of the future. Nier was doing sharding. Ethereum was, you know, trying to move to proof of stake still at that time, but was going through this whole thing where they were basically like, you know, we're going to have executional layer shards on Ethereum. And then that slowly faded, you know, from from existence. But uh, the vision there of like, we're going to focus on making things fast. And if we just focus on making the fastest blockchain out there and the most performant network out there, who knows what people are going to be able to build. And that is actually still the thesis today. But in my head, I'm like, that's what TSMC did, right? That That is what DJI did. That is what all of these companies, that, that's what Costco did. That's what all of these companies did that built massive empires that no one was able to touch they focused on cost reduction, performance increases. This was the transition from 2G internet to 3G internet to 4G internet that like created the mobile revolution, right? We wouldn't have had the smartphone revolution if we didn't have incredibly fast connectivity. And that a lot of the way that like people were thinking about scaling blockchain was basically scaling value, not actually scaling the blockchain. And I still feel like there's a little bit of that today, um, which I find kind of sad because, you know, there's no way that it, like any network today, Solana included, can support all of the world's users. And, you know, Solana's uh, three or four orders of magnitude closer to that than anyone else, and we still need to make the thing a oh, thousand times faster to support, you know, just India, let alone the rest of the world. But that mission of make the thing faster at all costs is something that I'm really drawn to. And I think that's just a much better system and a much better design philosophy than make the thing as valuable as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, that's what's interesting. If it was just about making money, like I could work for BlackRock or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I think like, you know, like you mentioned something that is interesting. Um, you don't know what people will build on top of Solana and basically all the blockchains, right? Because all of them started with a narrative. And I, I believe Solana said, we want to build kind of this NASDAQ kind of speed network and yeah. it, it seemed to have been focused on on this financial products etc and right. of course what happens uh you know people start to trade little monkey jpegs at the, at the end of the day which i guess nobody could have seen happening at that time like how users are going to use it and how do you see the narrative shifting now as the dust has settled a bit and solana has found its footing yeah i think this is one of those things where the original vision for Solana did not include fee markets, right? And it, it, the assumption there was that, like, competition for orders was not going to be the main thing. 
It was going to be a network that was really, really fast that could handle the volume of not even tr of orders but cancels. Right? Cancels are one of the the. If you look at the 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 amount of info that goes over an exchange, a lot of it's cancels, a lot of it's not orders. But it has to be fast, and you have to have guaranteed finality and all that stuff. And so that was Solana's original vision. But I was part of that original like six-person team that built Metaplex, or what became Metaplex, right? Which is the basis for all of the NFTs on Solana. And this is such a really good example of what you're talking about because. We didn't say, oh, let's take the ERC-721 spec and let's just port it over to Solana and call it a day. Solana NFTs are built fundamentally different than any other NFTs on any other blockchains. And they're built in the user space. They're not actually enshrined into the protocol level the way they are in other places. And that makes them a more flexible standard. That also you know, has some downsides because it is a more flexible standard. Um, but that breakout was basically cost disruption. Like this goes back to like the thesis I was talking about before, which is like if you make things disruptively cheap, people will build new types of things on top of them. Something like Drip House, which is, you know, distributing millions and millions of NFTs to folks for basically zero cost. I think they've spent maybe $4,000 in total on distributing, you know, millions of NFTs. That's impossible on any other blockchain. And that's not to say it's better than any other blockchain, right? There's Beeple is selling NFTs for $69 million on Ethereum. Hmm. The highest NFT on Solana, I think, is sold for $2.5 million. But there's been, just using compression, there's been f over 50 million NFTs minted this year alone on Solana. Hmm. Like, those numbers are not matched anywhere, right? And And that's the part for me that's so exciting, to say, like, if we massively scale the supply, if we massively scale what's possible to build by dropping costs as close to zero as possible, we're going to build something very different on this network than you see on other networks. And, you know, I, I find that incredibly exciting. Yeah. Well, one of the things that stands out on Solana is, for instance, that there's this decentralized infrastructure project building on top of it, which is something that is really um, plugging into the real world, right? With you know, yeah. uh, de decentralized wireless, etc. What are the projects at the moment that you are most excited about that you think, okay, these guys have really understood what Solana is capable of and are at the cutting edge of what Solana is built for? Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, we can talk about the consumer level and then we can talk about the infrastructure level because they're a little bit different. On, on the consumer side, I think Hive Mapper is probably the best vision for normal people to understand the power of blockchain technology. So HiveMapper is building basically a decentralized Google Street View. And you spend about $300 on a dash cam and you put the dash cam in your car. And as you drive, it takes 10 photos a second of just the road and what's around you and you know what's out in the front of your car. And then it uploads those photos via your phone to a network. And it starts building this like very detailed, intricate map of all the roads that you're driving. And it's obviously anonymized, and you know they do a bunch of privacy stuff. But the piece that's really cool here is the Google Street View car, you know, even if you're in like San Francisco, it drives by your house maybe once every eighteen months if you're lucky. But by building this sort of crowdsourced map of the world, you're able to say, like, okay, I'm gonna be driving along this route, like or I'm trying to get to this store. Um, how well plowed is this road, right? That's a question Google Street View can't answer. But like something like HiveMapper can say like, well, we actually have a bunch of, um, you know, storms, you know, snowstorms occurred last winter at these days and these days. 
we actually had someone who drove along the road, you know, four hours after the storm went through. How well plowed was it, right? Um, you know, when the if you're looking at getting an Airbnb, you'd be like, oh, what does this Airbnb look like in spring? What does it look like in fall? Uh, there's all these sorts of questions you can start answering um, when you have this sort of high-frequency data coming in. And that data, it's not going to be as high fidelity as the Google Street View data, right? Like Google Street View cars are like a million dollars each to fit out. This is a $300 camera with basically like an iPhone camera on it. Like the photos are good, but they're not as good as like a LiDAR map. But this is where like AI on the back end comes in and can say, okay, like each individual photo might be a tenth as good as a Google Street View photo we have 100 photos over the course of three months, we can actually build a composite image that rivals or exceeds what you get from Google Street View. And that is like the really cool power of this stuff because that's suddenly owned by users. And the places people drive are going to be the ones that are best mapped. And so there's this sort of implicit organization system behind it. There's not like someone in an office somewhere being like, what roads do the Google Street View cars need to be assigned to next week? It's just like, oh, the people who drive this get to see it. And then maybe the system says to you, hey, like there's a road a mile that way that we haven't mapped yet. And if you're driving in that direction anyway, well, take this road instead and we're going to give you, you know, extra tokens mm. for mapping a new area. And suddenly you've gamified that entire system. And for me, that is like, that is awesome, right? That is such a great use of blockchain technology that can make a network that is actually better than you get from a centralized provider and it's now owned by the people who have actually been mapping it yeah i, I see that but now a cynic would say okay um you could also do that in web 2 and just you know charge a yeah. fee and then incentivize people totally. anyways i mean um so the thing that the thing that blockchain solves here is that payment problem because that is just a nightmare to pay people out Right. Like suddenly you have to get everyone's bank account info. You have to set like that That becomes like a massive problem. Um, and then if people change their banks. Are you sure that's been updated? Like, oh, now we have to take taxes out. Like the whole thing just gets very complicated very quickly. There's very few things in Web 3 that are not impossible to do in Web 2. They're just impractical. And I think that's a really good thing to remember. Like we have analog computers right people you can you can do almost anything you can do on a digital computer with enough money and an analog computer what's an analog but computer will take... i don't know what that is oh yeah like <laughs> computers that actually don't run on digital circuitry so it's like a, a physical thing that is uh it it's a physical computer oh, so wow. uh for a quick little deviation <laughs> um computing tides is very difficult right like that is a very hard math problem and there's actually physical computers that up until the mid 80s this is how we made tide charts because a tide is a is a sum of basically seven sine waves and once you know those variables you have to run a bunch of integrals and functions to basically figure out what will the tide be at any given time well you can either do a ton of math or you can do a bunch of pulleys with a bunch of different systems of weight and those systems of weight actually create those sine waves and then you just you know turn that system forward and those variables change and suddenly the output is a nice little graph that shows you what the tides are going to be. And there's so much, like that is a way you can do analog computing that doesn't actually require a digital computer at all. Slime mold can actually compute very complicated functions very efficiently, just the the biological thing, (laughs) slime mold. (laughs) Wow. Uh, uh, A whole bunch Mm. of navies still up until like the late 2000s 
were using manual computers to calculate fire control solutions for torpedoes because this stuff was actually faster and it was easier to repair on like a ship than a digital computer would be, right? You, you burn out a chip on a submarine, like, good luck. You got to get another one or go back to port. You break a gear, well, there's a machine shop. A good mm-hmm. enough guy can actually make a new part and suddenly you can fix the thing, you know, while you're underway. So that, that, that as a as a as a fun little side note, like there's all sorts of things that we've just like turned computers onto the solution for, not because it's the only way to do something, but because it's disruptively cheaper and easier to do it that way. And so I think this is a great way to look at blockchain too. Is blockchain is usually not the only way to do something; it's just disruptively cheap or disruptively efficient to do it in that way. Yeah, and I think it becomes really apparent if you have ever done. You know, uh, cross payment, uh, cross border payments, stuff like that. It, it is really like for, for lots of people who are totally. not understanding crypto and say, "Ah, oh, we have everything and everything works just great." They they have never like sent money abroad in in a, in a country maybe that is not connected so much to the right. the system that we are used to. I mean, what are we doing right now? Right, we're on a video call over the internet. This existed in 1960. Right. If you were if you were in the White House, you could broadcast live to anyone anywhere in the United States. But it was very expensive. Right. And so it was it was functionally impossible for two people to do a video call unless they were billionaires. Right. And had like enough money to run dedicated cables between their two houses. But it wasn't impossible. It was just impractical. And I think that's a really good lens to think about blockchain technology is it's taking stuff that is impractical in Web 2, and it's making it suddenly practical in Web 3. Mm-hmm. Austin, I was um, trying to crowdsource some of some questions, and, yeah. I, I, and I did. And unsurprisingly, a lot of the things that you may hear every day in and out on Twitter came up. And so I thought, you know, Austin, you, you've already answered most of these questions probably hundreds of times. I make it a little bit more fun for you, and I created a little uh, a spinning wheel, and it's called the spinning wheel okay. uh, of thought. <laughs> and, I love it. And let, let's see where the spinning wheel lands. You can't see it, but I have it literally here in my browser. Let, let's give it a spin on the wheel. and you'll... I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, the wheel is spinning. And the first topic is Solana is a VC chain with terrible okay. tokenomics. What do you say? I think terrible token economics is not a fair characterization. What I would say is that Solana is trying to do something very different than Bitcoin or Ethereum is trying to do. And that's okay, right? If Ethereum is now focused on the vision of making ETH valuable. And then downstream from that is scaling. And that's okay. But like, think about the early days of software. And you had $20 million contracts that Oracle was signing with, you know, a few companies, and those were the things that kept them alive. And then SaaS came in, and SaaS completely disrupted the the $20 million contracting model, right? SaaS said, we're going to massively expand the TAM, we're going to crash the profit margins, and we're going to sell stuff at disruptively cheap prices. That's Solana, right? And SaaS doesn't work until you hit a certain amount of scale. And Solana is still, you know, probably an order of magnitude or two away from having um, deflationary token economics, but it can happen, right? 50% of transaction fees on Solana are burned. So it has that same potential as any other chain to reach that point. 
it's just going to do so through scale as opposed to doing so through artificial scarcity. Mm-hmm. And, and the first part, the VC chain part, maybe let's address that one as yeah. well. Yeah. So the Ethereum ICO is illegal today. No one can do an ICO like Ethereum did. Um, and that is one of the huge advantages that Ethereum has, is that they were able to launch in an area that was basically unknown with basically no regulation. And that's a huge advantage, right? I think that the the token economics are one thing, the token distribution is another. Um, Solana's token distribution is actually still pretty good for the for the the age of the network, right? This is not a particularly old network, and that's the thing to kind of remember is that it took Ethereum a while to get as decentralized in terms of holdings as it is today. Um, I don't really know what people mean like a VC chain, though, right? This is like a this is one of those terms that like so are so the you should not have any investment in a blockchain. Like, should uh, should should people who hold tokens not be allowed to sell? I don't really understand what the point of sort of the criticism of something as a VC chain actually is getting at. Yeah, I think what people are referring to is mostly, you know, the distribution, that it's fair, that that, that there's not like a lot of people who hold so much power that they could um, dump prices too much. Sure, but what does fair mean, right? Like... If you took a bet on a network, is it fair that Joe Lubin has millions of ETH? Like, is it fair that people who bought Ethereum at $80 in, you know, 2018 when the price crashed totally, like, is that fair? I don't really know what fair means in these situations because, like, there's someone like me who I joined Solana Labs when the price of the sole token was about $2, right? Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Does that make me an insider like I, I this is just opportunity cost right uh the seed round of solana and the, there was a sale on on coinlist it was something like 25 cents wow like this network actually there's been huge amounts of time historically when folks could buy in for a very 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 low price and some people did and but those people they were taking a very asymmetric bet the market was telling us everything's going in one direction and the vision of Solana that Anatoly and the other co-founders were espousing was super different. It was saying, like, actually, all these things you think are going to be the solutions, we don't think that's necessarily the case. And, you know, in some ways, that, that turned out to be right. But this is kind of one of those those very funny things that, like, people bring up. And I think really a lot of the times what it boils down to is that, like, there were people who believed in this network before it was a an obvious bet to make. And I don't know how you can necessarily blame a network for that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I think another view um, that I find interesting to looking at it is, you know, not, there is a secondary market. Like you, you at every step of the game, you can enter and. Uh, sim- similar to like when people buy an Apple share or a share of a company, um, in the in the beginning, it was just a few people who, who who had all the shares. But since it's traded all the time, I mean, now it's kind of like um, it has found a fair price, right? And, and you are still like maybe today at around, um, what is it today? $20? That sounds about right. Uh, Sold token is around $20. You, you still have the opportunity to buy in into the system and make this trade. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the dumping thing is always an I've always found that to be a very interesting kind of claim and problem because 
at the end of the day, like, what's the alternative that no one should be allowed to sell? Um, it's very confusing because when, when a when a retail trader sells their tokens, they have some impact on the price, right? Yeah, a little. But no one thinks of it that way, right? And the other, so there's just the, like, there's there's weird structures I think in the way that people in crypto talk about how this stuff works that feels like a lot of people don't actually understand how economics work or understand how any of this types of stuff works mm. in the real world. Um, and that's okay, right? Like, people are going through their own learning process, but, like, to say that, like, oh, there's something, um, I don't know, that there's something, like... going on or something. Yeah, like, this is this is just supply and demand. Like, no, if I, if I sell my house, no one's going to be like, man, you're dumping on the local real estate market. Like, that's just like, no, no, like, everyone has their own economic situation, and sometimes you have to sell something, and, like, that is what an efficient market does. It, it matches buyers and sellers, and you know, hopefully, there's about the same amount of supply and demand, and stuff does not have a big impact on the price. But like, that's not always guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's have a spin soon uh, on the yeah. on the wheel. But just one thing, since we're already on price, I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about that. But what do you think will the price be in the future? <laughs> Basically, I, I I am definitely not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. But let's say yeah. I'll interview again in a year. Would you be surprised yeah, I mean, look, if I'll... the price would be, you know, like $100? Would you be surprised? So here's what I'll say. I think crypto is too hard to put back in the box. I think this technology is disruptive and it's here to stay. And does that mean that Solana or Ethereum or Bitcoin is going to, you know, win out in the end or is going to be around in 10 years? I don't know. I, I believe it's going to be, right? I, I think all of, I think these networks like Solana and Bitcoin and Ethereum are too sticky at this point to go away. Mm-hmm. What that means for price, who knows? But I, I do think this technology is one that is going to ch- continue changing the world. It, it's sort of like saying we're going to put free-to-play games back in the box and go back to selling, you know, CD-ROMs in stores. Like, that's... <laughs> That's not going to happen. I don't think blockchain technology is going to go away. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, next spin on the wheel. We have... Ah, it had to come. SPF, FTX. Yeah. I actually don't know. Maybe we can dive a little bit into this. How did SPF and FTX become so intertwined with Solana? Yeah, this is a good one to sort of talk about. Um, I think a lot of people learned about Solana through Sam Bankman Freed in the early days, right? There's that famous tweet of I'll buy all your soul, you know, that one. For three dollars um, and then fuck off or something like that. That one, yeah. yes. <laughs> and I think that 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 was a strong endorsement of the network and that brought a lot of people to it. Um, you know, FTX actually invested more money in Polygon and Aptos and Sui than it did in Solana, right? Mm-hmm. But what they also did is they built Serum. And Serum was the first central limit order book built on chain on any blockchain. And Serum was real, impressive, solid tech. And the folks at FTX who, you know, were real engineers, they saw the power of building something on Solana. And they said, hey, we can actually build something on DeFi that will rival the performance of a centralized exchange. And that was how the original, you know, that that was how the original uh, group got connected in. Um, with the folks at Solana Labs was that they were saying, oh, we actually want to build something. And the code in Serum now has been forked and it's been turned into OpenBook and it sort of inspired Mango Markets and, you know, all these other groups on Solana. 
And so, you know, the in the original days, the folks at FTX were building real technology and real projects on Solana. And at some point, like something must have happened in FTX where they changed from being builders to being, you know, extortionists, cheats. I don't know what the right language is, right? Uh, but at some point, that desire to change to to build competitive projects change to be a desire for market capture for regulatory capture for using their position of power as an advantage right and and you know that that is the the fraud and the crime that became the collapse of ftx um but you know in the early days like the thing that drew them to solana was the performance and the technology and they built real technology on the network Mm -hmm. as well did you ever meet uh, spf personally yeah, uh, I was on a few calls with him, and then I met him at a few conferences. Mm-hmm. And what was your impression like then? Would you could you tell there's something now yeah. in retrospective? Do you, do you think there were some signs that were troubling? How was he? I think anyone who sets out to build an empire that fast is a bit of a strange person, right? And you see this across the board, right? Any of these folks who have truly built empires, especially very quickly. Um, they're, they're weird people. Um, so there were never any indications that, you know, in, in my interactions that this person was um, anything other than ruthlessly efficient. Um, so I, I never got any inclinations that, you know, there was there was fraud going on or something along those lines. But, uh, you know, the, the stuff that, you know, I, I would say there was probably a year where work like serum was happening and then you know at the time when something like metaplex was launching you know uh, ftx and sam were not really interested in being involved in that they were they were busy launching other stuff like you know maps.me and a bunch of those <laughs> projects that really didn't do anything and really never went anywhere um but they, they they sort of lost that spark for being builders and they sort of i think my sense was there was there was an internal change between like we are building in crypto versus we are like financiers. We are banking. We are we are doing other sorts of complicated financial products. We're traders, right? And at that point, there was really no work that happened between Solana Labs or Foundation and anyone there because that's just not what blockchain's about for us, especially mm-hmm. at the foundation level. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the questions that goes um, along with that is, you know, the funds that are now trapped in uh, the FTX, FTX bankruptcy and that people are flooding will flood the yeah. market and crash the price, etc. Do you know, I mean, the one I've seen, the one number is 1.16 billion worth of Solana at the time of that um, court filing. Um, yeah. Is that correct? Can you... G- do you know more about um, how much is really in there and uh, what the Westing probably is? When can we expect yeah, yeah. it to so, go into the market? So in November of last year, the Solana Foundation actually put out a blog that listed sort of all of the token sales that Solana Labs or the Solana Foundation had done uh, with FTX or Alameda or any of the sort of affiliated entities, including the vesting uh, curves on there. So that information's actually all been publicly available for, you know, almost a year at this point. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the best source as far as I know for that. I don't have any information on, you know, that bankruptcy procedure that is not publicly available at this point. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really know anything more than anyone else does mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but the majority of the soul, the vast majority 
uh, is locked for you know an extended period of time based on what those original token sales were were like. I think I think the last I think it expires basically through twenty twenty eight. Um, you have to check the the the, the mm-hmm. blog post for kind of more more info there. But um, you know, I mean, it it is uh it is something to pay attention to. Sure, if like people are making decisions based on that. But at this point, all the information really is out in public and kind of has been for almost a year at this point. I will link to that report. Uh, um, I'm going to find it and yeah. link, link to it. Cool. Yeah, there's been a lot of folks on Twitter that are sort of trying to say that somehow this is new. Um, you know, again, this was all sort of like put out in public in November of last year for, for exactly this reason, that there were there were questions about this. And, you know, it, it's not common policy for something like the Solana Foundation or Solana Labs to talk about these types of financial transactions. But these are these are extreme and extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What do you think? One more uh, go at the wheel and then we... we... Let's do it. All right. Um, spinning the wheel and... Well, it's Solana TVL. It's Solana TVL. Yeah. It has gone down dramatically, obviously, with the crash. TVL means total value locked. Um, it's kind of indicated for, for DeFi interest. There were also <laughs> some you know, articles uh, claiming that um, addresses and activities going down dramatically uh, or on Solana. What, 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 how do you address this, FUT? So TVL has always been a pretty poor metric because it's basically talking about theoretical liquidity. Um, what I would say is that Solana DeFi is really now DeFi 2.0. Like things like Jupiter Aggregator and Mango Markets and, you know, uh, Drift and all these sorts of teams, what they've basically built is the most capital-efficient DeFi out there that often rivals centralized exchanges in terms of its slippage percentage. And this is really cool. So this is basically saying that Solana can do a huge amount of work with a fairly small amount of TVL capital. And so you see this in places like MarginFi as well. Um, but like Jupiter does this multi-routing system where... Um, you know, every dollar traded in Solana DeFi is traded about seven times more than you see in the Ethereum world. This is sort of the capital efficiency ratio of Solana DeFi. It's about seven times higher, Um, which means, you know, even though there is more TVL on a network like Ethereum, it's doing less, right? It's just simply less active. And so, you know, this is it, TVL is sort of like measuring efficiency ba- of like a delivery company based on how many trucks it has. <laughs> okay. Those trucks, yeah, like these trucks could be full and they could be driving around constantly and like they could be delivering things or they could just be sitting there, mm-hmm. right? And and so, uh, you know, a smaller company with trucks that drive faster to keep this like strained mm-hmm. analogy going, <laughs> uh, could be just as could be just as efficient or even more efficient than a company that has a hundred times more trucks, but those trucks basically don't move, or if they do move, they're all driving at five miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so TVL has always been sort of a metric that was an imprecise approximation, sort of like GDP. Like GDP doesn't actually tell you how much money people in a country make; it just tells you how much money is moving around in a country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so TVL is a metric that can be important that lots of people track, but it's certainly not the only metric. And I think it's going to become a less important metric over time. Do you personally track another metric that, just to see where you guys are standing in the, in the competition? I don't think the ordinal ranking is particularly helpful. Like, 
if you know if something happens and Polygon DeFi crashes and not like ah oh, this is better for Solana mm-hmm. like there's so much of this sort of PVP like very zero sum culture in the bear like we used to say wag me right mm. we're all gonna make it and now it's like but that's a oh, top signal really... austin it's always a top signal <laughs> you know but like this is the this is the thing that i think people like there's something that's i i, I find this like really toxic is like what does this network launching mean for my network is this mm. bullish or bearish for solana is this good or bad for ethereum it's like Come on, guys! Like a rising tide really does lift all boats. If the, if there's anything the bull market shows, it's that like Gollum got listed on Coinbase. Like clearly, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like the place we're gonna be in when the market starts to come back, if we do see another another market cycle, is you know great for everyone. And so, where there's areas to collaborate, we should be collaborating. And you see this a little bit, right? You see, like, Solana Foundation and Polygon are working together on U.S. policy around stablecoins. That's not something people expect to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to happen everywhere. Like, you're not going to see us, like, co-investing in a DeFi company or something like that or mm-hmm. running a joint hackathon. But, like, there are these existential areas that will benefit everyone who's building on blockchain. And this is something that traditional industries get, Right. Bank of America and Chase compete on everything except they go hand in hand and best of brothers to the Senate Banking Committee to talk about banking regulation and market structure bills. And this is stuff that the crypto industry could really, I think, learn to do better is to figure out what are the areas where we can collaborate? What are the areas where maybe we don't exactly agree but we can meet in the middle because mm-hmm. it's better than neither of us getting our way and what are the areas where we're going to you know fight tooth and nail uh to make sure that we win a deal over someone else or someone else wins a deal over someone else you know whatever um but there's a lot more room for collaboration than i think we think there is you know if every single user of blockchain everywhere in the world suddenly moved to solana we would still have you know one percent or less of the global user base of the internet using blockchain like the the tam yeah the tam here for existing crypto users is still very small the 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 real goal here is to bring more people into blockchain and if they come in through bitcoin then you know they discover solana awesome if they come in through solana and then discover bitcoin awesome at the end of the day like onboarding shouldn't be tribal it should be the sort of thing where everyone benefits from it i would say chances are though that people like the real masses come in through an app a game something we haven't even seen yet right i mean i i don't think um bitcoin or ethereum will the, the l1s per se will be will be the driver of the mass adoption um yeah yeah do, do you see there you know like looking a little bit forward into the future something that is consumer focused that is exciting, that could be, you know, that killer application. I mean, I think we are we are finally at a point where, like, on-chain Venmo is, like, starting to become a thing, right? Where, like, the idea that you can transfer money anywhere in the world on a user-friendly application is super strong. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a lot of room for decentralized social media. I think a lot of people are really fed up with the social media companies and looking for something better. Um, you know, the, the rise of Signal really shows this. Like, 
normal, non-technical friends of mine are like, oh, yeah, I got I got Signal because I don't want my, my data tracked. And it's like, how the hell did you discover Signal? Mm-hmm. Like, this is crazy. Like, if you can learn how to use Signal, if you can actually understand the value prop of why you should use Signal and not WhatsApp, like, this is a bright future for crypto, right? And I think we're probably just a little bit away from it from a UX perspective, um, but I think we're going to see a whole slew of consumer-facing applications that are are making use of both payments on blockchain, social media on blockchain. Um, I don't think it's going to be games. I think games are a component, but I don't think games onboard people. I think games just are entertainment and fun. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot of really great stuff over the next few years getting built on blockchain. And this is, again, this is the Solana bet is like, if you make it... Th- if you make Solana the best place to build stuff, more people will build stuff on Solana. And what is your strategy? Because let's extrapolate this. Um, people come on, people will do cross-border payments. And of course, you and I know that yeah. the blockchain is not used for illicit activities only. However, stuff will happen. There are rules that, you know, uh, why is it so hard to actually send money abroad? Because there are some rules in place. Um, these rules cannot be enforced anymore. Um, how do you navigate with the pressure coming then from politics, etc.? So I think there's a few things to kind of keep in mind here. The, the first is that blockchain is actually a terrible place to do illicit activity, right? It's the only money transmitter network in the world that has perfect record keeping. You can't delete a record. Every transaction on the blockchain is enshrined there. Yeah, they don't vaporize. (laughs) (laughs) But every transaction is permanently written into the ledger, right? Like if you are sending bank to bank transfers, someone can go in and delete those records. And this has happened before, right? Banks have been caught laundering money and the the people just went in and deleted the records of the stuff. Like this is not a problem on blockchain. Now, for North Korea, it's a totally different problem, right? Because like, if you're, what you're talking about is like terrorists and drug dealers, they don't want a record. They want to trade in cash. They want sacks of U.S. dollars and diamonds and bars of gold, stuff where there's no transmitting record of it. They don't want Bitcoin, right? The, the, uh, the illicit economy demand for, for blockchain currency is actually lower than than the uh, than the use of illicit funds in the traditional space, right? There's like a there, one of the great reports from Chainalysis is showing that the actual you know as a percentage of economic activity, uh, it's lower in blockchain than it is in the U.S. dollar. That's mm-hmm. wild. Um, like cash, but this or, is or, or 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 even if oh, bank, yeah. I mean, I mean H, HSBC, etc. Yeah. They have done billions, right? I mean, all the time, it's on record. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I'm an HSBC customer, so maybe I should ah, talk about okay. my account canceled. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Like mm-hmm. the, these are, you know, and what happens is they go in, they get the slap on the wrist. Like no one got fired for that HSBC thing. Like it's wild. They say, oh, we'll do better next time. Mm-hmm. Um, that <laughs> is the way the system currently works. I think if if the U.S. Mint had a legal obligation to do everything they could to keep the U.S. dollar out of the drug trade, U.S. dollars would be built very different than the paper dollar or the, the cloth dollars we see today, right? So there, there's sort of a double standard here, but this happens with every piece of new technology, right? How many times has the National Security Agency or the FBI gone to Congress and saying, we need a backdoor into encryption? And the answer has been, no, you 
don't. And thankfully, the U.S. has been able to stay strong on that. Other countries have not. And I think this is just a process where uh, every time something bad happens, people will always trade civil liberties and freedoms for a false sense of protection. And right now, I think a little bit of that's pointed at crypto. But I think over the long term, like people are going to understand the power and the value of this stuff. And, you know, they understand it in developing countries, right? In third world countries, this trade off for crypto is easy. No question about it, right? Like I, I have friends who were in Ukraine before Russia invaded and they were able to get out because they had most of their money in crypto. They didn't have to wait for the banks to reopen and then try and get their funds out of the country. They had yeah. money on a ledger. They had money they could transfer into an account or send to a friend abroad, right? There there was all of this thing. You know, mm-hmm. if you were in Venezuela or Turkey and you bought Bitcoin at $69,000, you're actually still up today relative to the local currency <laughs> because crazy. inflation is so high. Yeah, that's crazy. It's still, like Bitcoin's crashed from like, you know, $70,000 to $20,000 and you're st- it was still a better investment than holding local currency. Yeah, that's absolutely um, nuts. <laughs> yeah, and and so like this is the place where like again in another world that used to be the U.S. dollar, right? Rich people in developing countries used to hold all of their money in U.S. dollars, but what happened? It's harder to get U.S. dollars than it used to be. Uh, they still need to be in a bank. Most banks don't let you open an account from abroad. Like if you're just a citizen in Turkey, like you can't just open a bank account with Chase in Manhattan, right? But you can buy USDC, and you can buy USDC on Solana for $0.00025, a transaction fee. And you can actually go to the Grand Bazaar in Turkey, and you can give them gold, and they will give you USDC on Solana. And that is wild, right? Like, I think that is the place where, like, even in the United States, even now, we have an incredibly stable economic system. We have an incredibly stable banking system. We have an incredibly stable political system compared to the rest of the world. And we forget just how rare that is. And in places where that's a little bit less common, the promise and potential of blockchain is like crystal clear. Now we've talked about, um, you know, stable coins uh, on Solana. Um, where do you see the soul, the soul token um, play into that equation? I don't think, and there's there's a few prominent people on Solana that disagree with me on this. I don't think volatility is good for something you want to use to pay for stuff. I think that if we want to build a world where people are paying each other for stuff on chain, they want to know that when they get, especially if the thing is off chain, they want to know when they get the money, it's going to be the value that it is today. Right? And the there's, there's one exception to this, which is NFTs. NFTs are the only thing that is sort of a commodity that you buy with crypto that uh, is okay to be in the native currency. Everything else is denominated in USDC, mm-hmm. right? And and how do we know this is the case? Startups that are raising on a, you know, there's the whole ETH is money crowd, and I, I disagree with them. I don't think ETH is money, but I don't think it has anything to do with Ethereum. I just don't think blockchain currencies are money in that way. But every startup raising on Ethereum is not raising in ETH, they're raising in USDC or US dollars, right? This is kind of like everything in the real world is still denominated in US dollars or fiat currency. 
And maybe that'll change someday. Um, but I think stable coins are going to be one of the main things that onboard people to crypto. The same way that like, without credit cards, you wouldn't have had the internet. Without PayPal, you wouldn't have e-commerce. Without PayPal, you also wouldn't have fintech companies, right? PayPal got people used to transacting on the internet in dollars, but it also got people used to keeping money on the internet. And the minute you're keeping money on the internet, well, maybe I'll put it in E-Trade now. Maybe I'll put it in Robinhood. Maybe I'll start investing in stuff on the internet. And that was an incredibly powerful cycle. Um, but it was based on physical U.S. dollars. And I still think that's how a lot of people are going to end up using mm-hmm. Solana. Okay. No, that, because as you said, Solana is really cheap. Even right now, around $20, which is historically seen a lower point. But it's still then too valuable if it's just here to pay the fees. I mean, one soul would yeah. probably cover all my expenses for, for many, many years, right? Yeah. So the idea here is a few things. One is that priority fees will probably make up a lot of the usage in the future. Um, and the other one is, uh, you know, so soul has basically three uses. One is Sybil resistance, right? Stake to a validator for Sybil resistance. The other one is to pay transaction fees on the network that you talked about. And the third is actually for stake-weighted QoS. So stake-weighted QoS was a, was a new utility for Sol that was introduced um, uh, about uh, 14 months ago or so, which basically says if you have Sol staked to a validator, you have the right to transmit basically that proportional percentage of network traffic. You don't have to use it. But if you are going to be an application, you're saying like we're going to be sending, you know, a thousand transactions every day. You're probably going to want to run a validator that has a certain amount of soul staked to it, so you can make sure you're landing those transactions. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of one additional functional use for the soul token is basically uh, a, a percentage of network share time. And so I think those things combine to build it actually a pretty good economic system in the long term. What that means for value, I can't really comment on, but you know the, the dynamics there feel pretty stable over the long term. So would you say, because in my mind, maybe that's a naive view, I always looked at blockchains and their tokens as basically little states, little nations, and they build some native economic activity, like yeah. an NFT. Right now, this may look silly, but this will grow. And I always thought, you know, at when this will grow, the economy will, will grow so importantly that it's almost becoming like a currency, like literally like a totally and, and accrue this monetary value on top of what actually the, the token should be worth if you just look at it from the fee perspective. But what you're yeah. saying is you don't believe so much in that model at the moment. I don't think US dollars are valuable because, I mean of those economic reasons, right? The US dollar is valuable because of the US Navy at the end of the day. Um, Blockchains don't have a monopoly of violence and they don't have a monopoly of violence that they can export. And so the fundamental thing that makes something valuable on a blockchain is the state, is the ability to write to the state. And I don't mean like the government state, like literally the chain state. that ability to write to the state of the chain, that ability to modify that state of the chain, the ability to own a piece of that state, those are the things that fundamentally make blockchains possible. And so transaction fees being very cheap isn't a problem if you get enough scale. I mean, think about it this way. Bandwidth used to be something that you paid for, right? 
text messages, minutes on a cell phone, all used to be something that you paid for. Now, everyone just pays a subscription fee and gets unlimited bandwidth, unlimited text messages, unlimited minutes on their phone. The entire model has shifted because fundamentally, bandwidth is a very abundant supply. And so what you're, what you're paying for there every month is the ability to send something whenever you want to. That is fairly similar to stake weighted QoS, right? That, mm-hmm. that is basically you're reserving time to be able to do something in it. And so I think what, what is now described primarily as a transaction model of economics on blockchain will probably change to a flow model. And a strained analogy here is like mercantilism worked really well for the Spanish Empire until they found a ton of gold in their you know colonial pillaging of, of Central <laughs> and South America. Uh-huh. But they found a bunch of gold and suddenly their entire economy collapsed because the thing that they... You know, mercantilism failed when they basically brought too much money back Mm. because their system was based on that. I'm not sure that a lot of the existing blockchain economic models can survive the massive amounts of scale that will need to be built in to make this technology seriously work. If what we're talking about is the only value for a token is your ability to pay a transaction fee on a network. And I think what we see with Ethereum right now is they're really really pushing that model as far as you can by saying, well, there's now a network that doesn't actually settle on Ethereum, right? It's it's built on Celestia, but you can use the Ether token to pay gas fees on that network. And it's like, okay, really? Like, how long is that going to last? To me, that is basically colonialism uh, without any of the political baggage, but that is very similar to saying like, this part of a different country is now actually part of our country because there's a there's a economic dollar relationship between the two. Can you expand a little bit for people who are not so aware um, about what's happening there on, on Ethereum and with, with this new um, L2 that is tapping into Solana somehow? Yeah, so you know the classic uh, layered model for Ethereum today is that you have the base tr- layer of Ethereum, the L1, that can do about 14 things per second. And what we're going to do is we're going to build layers on top of that, where we're going to say, okay, all the activity that took place in this layer two, we're going to basically compress it into a proof, if it's a zero-knowledge system, or just basically compress it into a smaller way of storing data, and write that data back to Ethereum. You can sort of think about this as like zipping a file or compressing Mm -hmm. a file on a computer. You're saying, you know, we're going to get some amount of additional efficiency where one transaction on Ethereum can suddenly become 10 transactions on the layer two. And then you're going to take the next layer and you say, well, one transaction on layer two can become 10 transactions on the layer three. And one transaction on the layer three can be 10 transactions on the layer four. And so it's this sort of layered scaling solution where you may go up to L47s at some point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is maybe where a user actually is able to message someone else on blockchain. Um, so that's kind of that 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 fractured state scaling model um, that is going on sort of the Ethereum world now. And at that base layer, it's still paying a transaction in ETH. It's basically saying, you know, you'll need the L2 token to pay gas on the L2, um, and then that writes transactions back to the L1. You'll need an L3 mm-hmm. token to pay transactions on the L3, but that basically with enough 
systems, we can abstract this away so a user doesn't really ever have to think about that. The bet on Solana is different. The bet on Solana is basically each layer you add adds a middleman and it adds complexity and it adds friction for users. So let's try and make the base layer scale as much as possible um, to, to basically meet all of those needs natively. And that's never going to happen, right? Solana will eventually need to add layers, but maybe it only needs four layers as opposed to needing 100 layers on a different network to achieve that same layer uh, level of scale. Mm-hmm. But but didn't you also, uh, you mentioned Celestia. Um, oh, yes. Uh, yeah. They so, tap into the Sol- Solana. Somehow there's a connection there, and I haven't actually read up on it so much. So ah, me, yes. I'm, I'm actually, I also would, would like to hear your take on, on, on this news. I think it's quite recent that this came out, right? Yeah. So um, Solana runs on something called the Solana Virtual Machine. And the Solana Virtual Machine is a different architecture and different system than the Ethereum Virtual Machine. And today... You know, most things in blockchain run on the Ethereum virtual machine, right? That's what, you know, Polygon is EVM compatible. Ethereum is obviously EVM compatible. Avalanche is EVM compatible. You know, the Binance smart chain is EVM compatible. Um, But what what this group uh, has done is they've basically taken the Solana virtual machine, which is incredibly efficient, incredibly performant. It's what gives Solana its ability to hit, you know, tens of thousands of transactions per second, as opposed to, again, the, the roughly 14 to Uh, transactions per second that Ethereum does, and to say, uh, we're going to take this Solana virtual machine and we're going to deploy it on top of what's a different, it's called a DA layer, the data availability layer. And so they're building this on Celestia, and Celestia is a modular blockchain framework that hasn't launched yet, but looks like it'll probably be launching sometime this year, or at least, you know, maybe in Q1 or something like that. Um, And they've been trying to basically build the Solana virtual machine on top of that. And there's nothing in that stack that talk that really touches Ethereum, except that you know you can you can pay for some transactions in Ether on that sort of system. And so you know this is a different model. This is basically saying that Ethereum now is anywhere you can spend Ether, which hmm. you know on one level, like sure, I was in another country recently and they have a local currency, but they kind of preferred to get paid in U.S. dollars and like. Sure, like that is that is in some in some level that is scaling the U.S. dollar, but I also don't have any of the legal protections that I would in the United States. Like if if they uh, you know overcharge my credit card or if they you know if someone tries to rob me, it's not like I can go to like you know the police in the United States and be like, hey, I was using my dollar in this country. Like, can you go do something about it? They'd be like, no, sorry, that's a different country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that this idea that like. We're scaling Ether the asset, but we're not necessarily scaling Ethereum the network. Is uh, it? Th- that's kind of always been my my feeling of this, but that's a deeply unpopular take. Okay, so. but but couldn't <laughs> like it sounds smart to be honest. I mean, uh, to cement the the, the dominance of, of price wise at least, uh, and kind of get to this uh, monetary premium to to do that. Sure, but like I, I think that's fundamentally extractive. Okay. Like, no one ever said colonialism wasn't economically efficient, right? Like, yeah. Th- this is I'm I, the things that attracted me to this space were not the ability to make money; it was the ability to build things that could change the world. And so, you know, for me, 
the vision that Solana is espousing of one where we can just massively scale and make up fees through volume as opposed to making up fees through fees. That feels like a better system design for me personally and something that I am more interested in working in Mm -hmm. than something that's trying to accomplish similar goals by finding ways to make fees higher. But but at the end of the day, I mean, the U.S. dollar is somehow, um, you know, that f- for people in Argentina, right? I mean, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't need to be extractive. I mean, for them, it's really a, a positive thing to have a, a U.S. dollar because their own currency is so bad. Um, yeah, but it cuts both ways, right? Like the U.S. dollar being strong also means that the U.S. government can assert a huge amount of control, right? Like, the U.S. dollar is not morally neutral. Mm -hmm. It comes with the CIA. It comes with the U.S. military. And you can make an argument that all this stuff is a reasonable trade-off, potentially. But, you know, when the World Bank comes in, it's not just the World Bank that comes in. It's all the economic development corporations that now have access to your market because of this. And, like... There's good and bad of that, but it's not morally neutral is the thing I would say. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind here is that the more layers you add into Ethereum, the more middlemen you're adding in and potentially the more problems you run into of of control and autonomy. And I don't think it's going to happen. Like, to be clear, this is like downside protection stuff. This is not like, oh, this will definitely happen. But I think there's a little bit where... The vision of building fair, equitable, you know, we're going to bank the unbanked, like that stuff is gone from a whole swath of crypto now. And I think that's that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly not the, the mission of, of the Solana Foundation in the same way. But I, I just think that like, I, I don't think, to be clear, I think Ethereum is going to stay a major currency for a very long time right the, the 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 community is so strong the network is so strong like it's not going anywhere i just think that the stuff that i'm more interested in working on is happening on places like solana the i think the banked unbanked um this keyword kind of triggered one of my talking points as well which is of course the bankless people um from ethereum um ties in quite yeah. nicely um you know, it's funny from my perspective. I mean, I think they do a great job, amazing work. I wouldn't be so aware of Solana and maybe also bullish if it were not for these guys. I mean, they they never talk about um, Polkadot. They never talk about Avalanche. They never talk about uh, Tezos. They never talk about Ripple. But they talk basically every day about Solana. Why is that? It, for, for me, it kind of elevated Solana to that real competitor that they're kind of afraid of. And... Um, yeah, yeah, literally, they brought me to Solana. <laughs> First off, I love that. <laughs> um, you know, what I would say also is like, I want Ethereum to be successful, right? I don't think that that Ethereum has to fail for Solana to rise. I think that the market's big enough, you know, as I was saying, there's at most 20 million daily active users of blockchain right now. Like, Let's add two zeros to that. That That is the goal that Ethereum and Solana communities are pushing for. And, you know, that being said, though, there are people who have large financial incentives in their token 
doing more and doing better. And that's fine. That's great. That's how this whole industry works. Um, but I do think that there is this thing where Solana can't be ignored, right? You can disagree with it. You can criticize it, but you can't ignore it. And, you know, it is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. Like, that is... 80 to 90% of the of the of the brain trust at this point of what's going on in the crypto space. And I think that that's healthy. The same way that Ethereum folks and Bitcoin folks argue all the time, like adding a, the Solana argument to that mix, I think makes everyone better. You said something interesting. You said, okay, the mind share is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. And I w was saying that it, this is not reflected in the market because just the other day, Solana dropped out of the top 10. Now it's, I guess it's back in. Yeah. Um, I find that interesting. I know you're not allowed to talk about price, but um, it, it smells like an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of networks in the top 10 that haven't really earned their place at this point. Um, but just because you haven't earned your place doesn't mean that you're not valuable, right? This is this is the classic thing about Everybody like... Everybody gets a star. <laughs> yeah, right. But also, like, how many stocks in the stock market are just, like, massively overvalued, right? You look at the P&E ratios, and you're like, how the hell did that get there? Uh, the, uh, the blockchain iced tea company. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, like, yeah, or, or you know, like, look, I love NVIDIA. I think it's an incredible company. Uh, we'll see, right? Like, yeah. th that's a, that's a, those are pretty big shoes to fill at this point, like, in terms mm -hmm. of, its, of its economic value. Um, so, you know, like, we'll see how this all goes. Um, but the market cap, I, it does not concern me, especially not in the short term, right? Like, I think we're, we're in the irrational phase of the market still, where uh, no one knows why stuff's valuable. Like, it, it's all very unclear at this point. It reminds me of the early days of, like, streaming or internet television, where, like, there'll be, there'll be some that kind of, you know, succeed out. The other thing, too, is, like, quite frankly, like, the FTX bankruptcy uh, is scary. It mm. takes a lot of time to dig in and understand what is going on there. And, you know, I I'm really looking forward to that being over and for, you know, that to be something that's in the rearview mirror for the entire industry. But, like, I get why that may give people pause on this entire industry right now. Um, we have to stop trusting centralized entities that blow up every few years this is the most predictable thing in the world that like how many how many centralized crypto entities blew up last year and they are not even crypto right like ftx was not a crypto company it was a traditional financial company that happened to be trading crypto assets celsius was not a crypto company right it was a it was a traditional company that happened to be trading crypto assets and these things happen like, and you know, the explosion of Enron did not prove that deregulated energy markets are a bad idea. Uh, you know, the 2008 financial cri crisis did not prove that banks were fundamentally bad and derivatives should be banned. Um, I, I think this is this is a process that like the market will continue to go through. But like, you know, it's 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 a thing right now where, uh, you know, in this economic climate, People are just a little bit more gun-shy in the United States, but you go to Asia and it's totally different, right? For those of you who are at Token 2049, you know, or like we, I just got back from a hacker house in India where we had over 3,000 people register and show up and, you know, are excited to be building on Solana. It's the largest Web3 conference in India is the Solana boot camp. Uh, that's wow. wild. That's crazy. Um, yeah, and, but, you know, you go to mainnet, you go to permissionless, like, 
it's a little less busy than it was a few years ago here. Um, but that doesn't, you know, I think just as this technology potentially moves into its next phase, maybe the next few years of development are all in Asia and APAC. And then, you know, it comes back to the U.S. the same way that games kind of left the United States for a few years. And now the excitement is back in the United States. What you said is interesting with all the companies that went bankrupt. Uh, I just recently, um, actually today, bought a new phone. And uh, it's always a good uh, moment to clean up the apps that you have. Yeah. And there, there have been so many apps on there that are now bankrupt. It was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, Celsius, BlockFi, et cetera. I've tested them yeah. all. Um, thankfully, it didn't uh, really, you know, like it was not my cup of tea. Um, but that brings me to maybe my second last question. You know, I would on paper be the, probably the perfect Solana phone user for people who don't know. There's a Solana phone out there. It's called Saga. I mean, I'm crypto native, tech savvy, see the value of blockchain, right? And uh, bullish on Solana as well. However, like it would not even have crossed my mind to buy the phone. I'm, for me, yeah. it was clear it's going to be the iPhone. How important is the Saga phone for the strategy? Um, is it more an experiment? To, and how does it play out? Yeah. So yeah. the so first off, I hear you, right? The iMessage lock-in is real. Um, but <laughs> you got to remember, most of the world uses Android, right? Like something like 75% of all phones run Android. And uh, the Solana mobile stack is open source and it's built for Android. And so Saga itself is an experiment, but I think the Solana mobile stack is the real long-term play. I want to see low-cost phone manufacturers in developing countries start integrating the Solana mobile stack into their phones because it will sell more phones, right? Because mm -hmm. as blockchain payments get more ubiquitous, you're going to need something like Seed Vault on all these devices because carrying around a ledger is not a great user experience. As great as Ledger is as a company, like... No one wants to carry a dongle and punch in a pin code every time they need to transact. Um, so getting that stuff natively onto phones, I think, is really important. You can see Samsung has made some progress in this with Knox, their their wallet that uses secure elements on, on their phones now. Um, so, you know, I think that's kind of, it, it's a long-term play. Uh, you know, Saga will either look like it was revolutionary and ahead of its time in a few years, or it will be like, remember when there was a crypto phone? That was weird, <laughs> right? Yeah. We've all switched on to using biometric authentication mm -hmm. instead of seed phrases, and we don't need crypto phones anymore because the fundamental security model changed, right? Who knows? Um, yeah. But I think it was it, the Saga was definitely a worthy experimentation, and my hope is that the Solana mobile stack, you know, the, the Saga proved that Android manufacturers should integrate this stuff, and I, I really hope we see more of that in the future. Apple's another story, right? I think there's... There's some interesting stuff that's going on with passkeys right now that might bring the crypto experience to iOS in a more in a more holistic way. But Apple runs that ecosystem with an iron fist, and mm. right now they're very anti-crypto. Um, yeah. Hopefully that changes. But until un, you know that, that's balls in Apple's court, there. There's really very little that any blockchain company can do at this point. I see. All right, Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you on um, and yeah. to be so generous with your time. Um, Thanks for having me maybe on. Maybe some closing words. Um, what is some media that you enjoyed recently that you would like to share with people? Uh, good question. So Harper's Magazine is pretty much the only monthly magazine that I, I read. 
um, and reading it for years, it's very sort of open and has lots of different types of ideas, but it's very intellectually rigorous. I think it's it's one I, I kind of encourage people to to check out. I recently reread the entire Ender sort of quadrilogy, whatever you call four books, um, that goes from Ender's Game to ends in Children of the Mind. I think those are still incredibly relevant to today in this world. I think they're very, very interesting. Eleanor Catton's new book, Burnham Wood, is the best thing I've read in a decade. Highly recommend it. It's it's sort of like, I think a lot of modern fiction has lost the idea that it needs a plot. And, uh, you know, her books are just are just beautiful. Um, so I think those are those are those are three things I would plug more in the crypto side. There's a new free code camp, like 20 hours of coursework tutorial that was just released on Solana last week. Check it out. It's very good if you're interested in getting up to speed. And then you should, of course, subscribe to my podcast, Validated. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will link to all of those. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Yeah, for everything. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me. It's also you, the listener. And each day there are more listeners joining and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episode and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at defiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.